Well, it's time for us to read the Bible. Um, the scripture this morning is Philippians 1, verses 3 through 11. If you could please stand for the reading of God's word. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart for whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of and praise of God, the word of the Lord. Well, Pam, you did such a dynamite job that I don't need this page or this page. Well, you're going to get a little background from me, too. Paul is writing to a church he'd established approximately 10 years earlier on his second missionary journey, the church at Philippi. And in response to a man from Macedonia, a, a vision that he had, Paul and his co-workers made that journey that eventually led them to the city of Philippi. And there they discovered several Gentile women who worshipped God and met for prayer outside the gate of the city at the riverside. And one of those Women was a businesswoman named Lydia who became the first Christian convert. And Paul's time in Philippi was punctuated by conflict. As Pam shared, he instigates a public disturbance when he casts a demon out of a fortune-telling slave girl, which angered her owners who dragged Paul and Silas before the local magistrates and accused them of, of advocating customs unlawful for Romans to accept or practice. They were publicly beaten with rods and jailed. And as you know, they were um, the doors were miraculously opened to the jail. Uh, they did not escape. And eventually that led to the conversion of the jailer and his entire household. And upon their release, they depart the city earlier than planned, but leave behind a core of new believers that meet at Lydia's house. Now, in the intervening years, the church at Philippi has grown and have become faithful supporters of Paul's ministry over this entire time. And it seems that the Apostle Paul had an unusually warm relationship with the Philippian church, and they apparently had felt the same toward Paul. At heart, the letter to the Philippians is actually uh, a thank you note 
The Philippines have provided financial support for Paul's ministry again and again as there was need. And beyond that, they had at some point sent Epaphrodites, uh, Epaphroditus from Philippi to be of assistance to Paul and help meet his needs. And so Paul goes beyond just merely saying thank you in this letter. It often also contains words of instruction, encouragement, and warning as fitted the circumstances that the Philippians were dealing with. Now, Paul obviously opens this letter with a greeting. We didn't read those verses today, but that's pretty standard procedure, especially in the time that Paul lived with, to say, well, this letter is from these individuals or this person, and then who it's to. And then he always uh, includes a, a blessing of some kind, it seems. In this case, he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he begins to open the body of the letter with this. He says, the church was in his thoughts. And when Paul thought of the Philippian church, the emotion he experienced was joy. This This is the first of 14 times that Paul will use the noun joy in his letter. Paul's joy is not the result, by the way, of the great fellowship that they enjoyed in the Philippian church, or because they had great numerical statistics, or because there were no problems in the church, or because there was no opposition outside the church. In fact, there were problems in the church, and there was opposition from the outside. We have no idea what their numerical statistics were, but... We do know that they enjoy great fellowship, and yet his joy has to do with none of those things. His joy, he says, was was because of their partnership in the gospel. That they had been a faithful witness to the good news of Jesus Christ, and they were persevering in that witness. Paul says, from the first day until now. That's a span of approximately ten years. They had held tenaciously to Jesus Christ. You know, some some good things happen only because we refuse to give up. You don't have to be smarter. You don't have to be stronger or more charming. You simply need to hang in there longer. Don't give up. And that's apparently what had happened in the church at Philippi. They had, they had stayed the course. They had not given up. They've been partners in the gospel from that first day that Paul met with that group of women outside the gates of the city to the present time when he writes to them. But we know that sticking to it is not always easy, don't we? Leslie married Lee Strobel in 1972. She was into banking. He was an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune. Neither was a Christian, and in fact, Lee was an atheist. So God was not on their radar. A woman named Linda Lensons befriended Leslie and led her to become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Lee believed that church was boring, hypocritical, money-grubbing, and irrelevant. Not a hopeful prognosis. 
Lee was often infuriated. Leslie's godly behavior increasingly accentuated his own cynical, bitter, self-centered attitudes. Leslie learned restraint and prayed. She did not give up. Two years later, Lee chose to follow Jesus. And as many of you know, he is now an internationally renowned Christian apologist, speaker, and author. Many know him for his books, The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, The Case for a Creator, and The Case for Grace. Paul is saying you did not give up. Perhaps that's a lesson we've learned maybe during COVID. We have not given up in spite of the circumstances. But I wonder, does joy come to our minds when we think of the church? Is our attitude toward the church governed by numbers or problems within or the lack thereof? Or even pressure from the culture we live in? Or do we feel joy to be partners with one another in the ministry of the gospel? In whatever form that takes for us individually, because as we partner as ministries, uh, as with, with the gospel, as we partner in the ministry of the gospel, we are, all have a different place in that, don't we? We all have different gifts and talents and abilities and many, even experience that we bring to the table. But do we find joy in the fact that we as the body of Christ are partners in the ministry of the gospel? Then Paul goes on to say next that he has a sure hope. That hope lies in the faithfulness of God to do in us what only he can do as a purifier of hearts and a perfecter of our faith. See, we're all a work in progress. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We are all a work in progress. Amen? In fact, it's, we're in a place of danger when we think we've arrived. Yeah. Um, we're all a work in progress. We're all at different places in the journey. It was true for the Philippians. It's true for us. God, who began a good work in us, in them, will see it to completion. And this, this process of bringing us to completion does require something of us. It's not merely a matter of coming to faith in Christ and then kicking back and letting God do His thing in our lives. First, it requires our own investment in the spiritual disciplines of prayer and reading and studying of the Scripture and gathering for worship. And there's any number of other things that are, are considered spiritual disciplines. Second, it requires our investment in one another through fellowship, instruction, encouragement, and accountability. And these things, as we do externally, then God uses to change us internally. We do the work on the outside. God does the work on the inside. And Paul says this process will come to completion on the day Jesus comes or we go to him. And an important reminder here, this word, patience with ourselves and with each other. 
We all grow at a different pace. Remember the song, I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day? Well, you don't climb a mountain in a hurry. You have to pace yourself. Some gain ground quicker than others. But the important thing is that we are all climbing and growing. And then Paul says, I have you in my heart. It is right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart. You know, that's, to me, a a, a more endearing term. Uh, To say, I hold you in my heart. And that's probably why the Philippian church was in his thoughts, because we have something in our hearts, then it's going to be on our minds as well, yes? And and then he, he says, we're in this together. I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming in the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. We're all in this together. We're partners in the gospel. We share in God's grace together. We are the body of Christ. In Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, it says, Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We are in this thing together, right? We're in this thing together. Paul writes to the Philippians from prison where he has been incarcerated for preaching the gospel. It seems Paul spent a lot of time in prison. But you know what the great thing about that is? He wrote a lot of his letters to the churches while he was in prison. What else are you going to do in prison, right? So the grace that Paul is given to endure persecution is the same grace given to the Philippians as they endure resistance and struggles in their own community. What was practiced, by the way, worship of the emperor, which might have been the most common religion. Um, also, worship of the Roman god Sylvanus, Dionysus, and Diana. All those things were forms of worship that were taking place in the city of Philippi, which was probably largely Gentile. They, they feel like there were probably very few Jews, if any, in the city of Philippi at that time. And so... We have all these forms of religion taking place, and many of them included, let's let's just say, unsavory practices. And so what happens when Philippians accept Jesus as their Savior? They do not participate in these unsavory practices any longer. And as seems to be true of human nature, we, we don't like it when we're doing things that probably our consciences are telling us aren't right, and you step out of those things. Now you make me look bad. And you can imagine the pressure that was placed upon the church of Philippi because they had chosen to be followers of Jesus Christ. A second way that the Philippians partner with Paul in, in grace is defending and confirming the gospel. See, God would give Paul and the Philippians Grace to answer objections to the truth of Jesus Christ. Paul was perhaps thinking of this in a more formal way because 
He was in prison and would at some point stand in a Roman court to give a defense of himself. For the Philippians, it was a matter of defending the gospel in their own community, in everyday life, among friends and neighbors and detractors. But God had given them the grace to do exactly that. And, and we still need that same grace today, don't we? It's just as surely available to us as it was to Paul and the Philippians. And I have to say, I don't think we are yet at the point where, where we are dealing with the same level of persecution that Paul and the church at Philippi faced, although it seems that our culture may be heading in that direction. But we surely deal with ongoing and ever-increasing objections to the gospel. And as a result, there's an ever-increasing need to defend that. And God, and, and Paul says, God will give us the grace to do exactly that. And then Paul goes on to say the church was in his prayers. I've often wondered, what kind of time did Paul spend in prayer? Think about, think of the burden he bore for the churches that, that, that he had a hand in starting. And, and notice uh, in, in verses 9 through 11, uh, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Notice what Paul did not pray here. I think te- things that we tend to pray often. He did not pray that they would be happy. He did not pray that they would be healthy. He did not pray that God would take away all their problems. He did not pray for any of the things that I think we tend to pray for rather naturally a lot of times. No, when the Apostle Paul prays, his priority in prayer is their spiritual health. So what did Paul pray for? First of all, he prayed that they would grow in love. Find a standard and rise to it. Grow in love. What better standard than that of love? Learn to love like Jesus. You know, according to the Bible, love is more than a gushy, warm feeling. It is something that leads to actions for the good of the other person. And note here, Paul is not telling the Christians in Philippi to start loving. They were already doing that. He prays that they would keep on loving and that they would learn to love better and deeper. Grow in love. And the point is this. For all of us who claim to follow Jesus Christ, we need to develop a deeper love for God and for one another, for His people. See, our love for each other, our concern for each other, reflects our love for God. And Christian love is lived out in relationships. Are some easier to love than others? Well, I think we all know the answer to that question. But it is when it is harder to love that our love has an opportunity to grow. And then Paul says, grow in knowledge. What Paul is encouraging here is not knowing about something, 
as much as it is knowing that results from experience and relationship. As we experience God and grow in relationship with Him, our knowledge of God and the things of the Spirit increase. It is true knowledge of God and His ways. Isaiah 33, 6, the prophet said, He will be the sure foundation of your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. And then in, in, the, in the letter to the Colossians, Paul writes in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. There we go again. How much time did Paul spend in prayer? We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. That's the kind of knowledge that Paul prays would increase among the Philippians. And he also says, you need to increase in depth of insight. That is what he's talking about is a moral perception, an understanding that allows us to make correct, ethical, moral choices, something that seems to be sadly missing in our day. Love without knowledge and depth of insight can be permissive, allowing acceptance of that which God would never Except, and we're being encouraged to that in our culture, aren't we? Paul here is praying that the Philippians might have a more intelligent love, a love that evidences itself in a relational knowledge of God and decisions that are governed by the truth of God's word. That's the knowledge that he's talking about. And then he says, he prays, I want you to grow in holiness so that you may be, able, may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Several hundred years ago, there was a holiness preacher who rode across England on horseback. He had only one message from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. It was this, Be holy because I am holy. That was his message. Somebody heard him and criticized him, saying, Every time you open that Bible, all you ever preach about is holiness. And he replied, I don't have to open the book. Look, it's even on the cover. When the Apostle Paul talks about living a life that was pure and blameless, or as the King James Version says, sincere and without offense, offense, he is talking about living a life that is more and more like Jesus. C.S. Lewis once said, God was so pleased with Jesus that he wants to populate the world with replicants. Those two words in verse 10 describe Jesus perfectly, pure and blameless. The word pure refers, refers to moral purity and integrity. It is Christian character that is genuine, authentic, and transparent before God and others. Blameless can have implications both personally and corporately. We need to live without committing offense personally, offense against God. But we also must be considerate of others 
not to offend them in such a way that it would cause them to stumble. And that's really important within the body of Christ. We are to live this way, Paul says, until the day of Christ, which simply means be ready for when Jesus comes. And then he says, I pray that you will grow in fruitfulness. And Paul's not talking about bearing fruit as in be fruitful and multiply. What he is talking about is bearing the fruit of Christ-like character. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love. Starts out with love. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If, if any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. It's love. I, I believe it's love that the other fruit of the Spirit springs from. See, the, the illustration of fruit implies that there is no instant righteousness. Fruit takes time to grow. It is the ongoing of the work of it's the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that produces fruit. And those Christ-like qualities are to be evident in our lives in greater and greater measure. That's what grow means. Increase. In these verses, the context again for growth is love. If you want to grow then have a desire and determination to love God and love His people. It is in fact love from which springs all the other fruit. Without love as the basis, none of the other fruit will grow. Pablo Casals was a cellist, composer, and conductor from Catalonia, Spain. He is generally regarded as the preeminent cellist of the first half of the 20th century and one of the greatest cellists of all time. When Pablo Casals reached 95, a young, a young reporter threw him a question. Mr. Casals, you are 95 and the greatest cellist that ever lived. Why do you still practice six hours a day? And Mr. Casals answered, because I think I'm making progress. We're in this together. We're partners in the grace of the gospel, but we're works in progress. We're works in progress. So as we grow in love, may we grow in knowledge, may we grow in holiness, may we grow in fruitfulness. See, I think there's joy in a church where that's happening. I think that kind of a church is a church we can be thankful for. And if we keep on doing those things, we will make progress. Amen? Pray with me. Father, thank you for the truth of Scripture to us today. May it find a place in our hearts. 
May it find a place in the way we live our lives. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to share in...